All right. As you can all plainly see, we have a timeline on the wall. I uh, need it tonight, um, not because we're going to be referencing lots of events, but we're really going to be referencing an entity that transcends the events. And we are going to come to its demise here very shortly and the end. Um, But in order to really look at this entity, we really need to see the whole timeline. Um, And we have already looked at one of these parenthetical entities that uh, John has taken time aside to do. We saw that really in chapters 12, 13, uh, where he um, takes the time out of our narrative (coughs) or out of our chronology to talk about a character that has a major role there. We looked at the beast. As you can see, we have him portrayed, or it portrayed, um, as a black line here. And we saw that it had um, seven heads. And we went all the way back to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece. Rome was the one that it was in John's day. that extended throughout much of the church age. Then it said there was a seventh. And the angel tells us there was an eighth who was of the seven, (coughs) and that that would be the one that would go to perdition. This aligns fairly well with um, what we know from Daniel as well, and talks about the last kingdom being a, uh, uh, carrying the metal of Rome, but mixed in with a lot of other uh, elements uh, of clay, and therefore it was a mixture and weakened, We did not see it being strengthened or revived in any way. Uh, So we're not looking for a revived Roman Empire. That is just not, I can't find anywhere in God's Word. There's a continuous deterioration right down Nebuchadnezzar's image that he saw uh, right down to the ten toes. And so uh, we shouldn't look for a revival of Rome as many prophecy teachers have been looking for, but rather for two other kingdoms to rise in the end. One for, as far as, uh, empires go one for a very brief period, and then a second one that would be dramatically uh, stopped at the end by Christ himself. And so um, we uh, have looked at that entity, and the reason I want to review him, or it, is because of the relationship between the beast and the one that, that John's going to talk to us about here in chapter 17. Of course, within talking about the woman who rides the beast, Uh, we find out some of the important information about the beast itself, which we've already studied. So we already studied verses 7 and following about uh, the meaning of the beast, specifically the heads. That the seven heads were seven mountains who were seven kings. Seven high kings. um, And we reference that the high kingliness was a matter of having rule over Israel. And that these are the eight uh, empires that really ruled the not just the land of Israel but the people, and uh, and their significance to it. So let's pick up in chapter seventeen, verse one. <coughs> I remind you where we are in our chronology. <laughs> I guess I'm not going to get seventeen one yet. Uh, we stopped right here, right on the very verge of Armageddon. We had the three demons who were sent out like frogs, and I didn't want to portray demons, so I put frogs. Um, however, their 
role is they are able to convince man that they can wage war against God himself. But you notice that prior to this, I have the end of the woman riding the beast. That by that point, the beast is without um, the woman. He, she has already been taken care of. She has been uh, destroyed or at least consumed. We'll put it like that. Not destroyed or consumed. Thank you, Bill. I see that coming. <clears throat> And so we're looking um, at this entity um, that's described as the harlot or the woman that rides the beast. Let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 1 and read a little while. Um, we can go into chapter 18. We'll see how far we progress tonight. Uh, if we need to finish it off next week, we'll do so. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We know that beast. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abomination and the filthiness of her fornication." And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So this is the description of this woman. We're going to see a little bit of, their, of this relationship between her and the beast. But uh, we have a pretty full description, and it takes us well out of one religious group. Um, There's been some very excellent works that have been written seeking to um, connect the woman who rides the beast with the Roman Catholic Church. <coughs> My goodness. Um, and they have gone through this list very carefully and done a lot of research into Catholicism. Um, and they have very adeptly connected um, facets of Catholicism with the woman who rides the beast. And, and their conclusion is, is that this must be uh, the entity because they aren't looking for anything but a revived Roman Empire. It's very convenient that the Vatican is right there um, in Rome. <coughs> and... They make those connections, and very quickly you're looking for a European entity. Uh, you're looking for an Antichrist because we've gone to chapter 13 and didn't make those nations, but made them people. And we have everything falling into place, seemingly. But there's a problem. The problem is that the beast can't just be Rome because we clearly see that it has an existence, and it can't be the Antichrist. Because it has an existence prior to John's day. And it would have an existence all the way to the day of Christ's return. And this is a problem. And so you have seven heads. And we have five of them have fallen. They've already come and gone. We have one that was existing in John's day. We had another one that was to come. And then there was an eighth. And so we are, have to be dealing with an entity that is not in the normal span of human life. Um, 
either you're tied to a demonic entity that has been around since creation, or you have to go outside of the field of personality and look for something else. And we have done that, tried to do that very carefully in developing the beast, not as an individual, but as a conglomeration of the nations, um, particularly those over Israel. So when we come to this woman who rides the beast, again, we are called all the way back to origins. And some of these names immediately make you think way back farther than the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. Hopefully, you identify these names over here. <coughs> um, two of them specifically call us to origins, don't they? What, what name calls you to origins? The word mother. Mother of God and mother of abominations. That should immediately make you think way back to origins. And, and that's what we're going to take you tonight, is back to there. We also see Babylon. Well, and we, there's been a lot of attempt to connect Rome to Babylon, but we're going to see why Babylon is such an important role, and it's the first really portrayal of this woman that rides the beast. The other thing we're going to find is that there is a, a real conflict going on uh, between the beast and the woman, and that conflict has spanned centuries. And it's not something that, that's just in the end times or just from John's day on, but rather it, goes, it takes us way, way back. And so when we look at this, um, we find that she sits on many waters. That's the first description, chapter 17, verse 1. Um, she, uh, and, of course, we saw that the many waters refers to many people groups. And so this isn't confined to one people. This is something that's, that's spread across many people groups. In fact, um, you could argue all the people groups. And we find that this relationship between her and the kings of the earth um, has been going on. And it says the kings of the earth committed fornication. The inhabitants of the earth made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And we find this consistent theme, and that's wrapped up in her title, the harlot, um, and her role there. And this fornication isn't uh, exclusively what we think of as sexual immorality. That's certainly involved in that description, but I wouldn't limit it to the physical realm. Uh, I would contend that this goes along more with what the Old Testament prophets had to say when they talked about Israel committing fornication with other gods. If you recall, the harlots kept bringing that imagery forward. You know, you are my bride. I, I, you know, and you went off and, and fornicated. You, you, you slept with other gods. You, you, and of course, Hosea is the prophet that was to show that imagery uh, by marrying a harlot and the harlot represented Israel, and Hosea was there to represent God in that covenant relationship, that God was faithful, but Israel was into harlotry of going after other gods. And so um, we don't want to just think of... I am going to reference uh, sexual immorality and its role in some of these, but we also recognize immediately that we're dealing with an entity that is drawing nations, drawing kings, drawing the masses of people into uh, a, a immoral relationship with other gods. Portraying herself as this wonderful entity, but in fact she is a harlot. She is not the mother of 
of goodness and of uh, righteousness, but rather we find her as the mother of um, abominations. And we're going to see uh, how this is portrayed here carefully. And so um, we get to see the in verse 3, uh, we see that the woman sitting on the scarlet beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, ten horns. We know who that is. That's the entity we were introduced to in chapter 13. And uh, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, has a golden cup of abom- full of abomination and the filthiness of her fornication. And she has this name. Um, and so we find her involved in all this activity. And yes, uh, and of course we can make a strong connection. We, we think of the cup of abomination. And of course most of the books would relate that to the uh, cup that the that the Catholic Church uses um, where you're doing a mass and the abomination of thinking that you are sacrificing our Lord over and over and over and over again and so when they present you with the cup they talk about it being the blood of Christ uh, this being the body of Christ and uh, we make that correlation Um, and that's uh, I'm not denying that that correlation is there what I'm contending is that that's not the only one that that is really a narrow view of a very broad entity. We find this gal involved with the beast all the way back when there was all these heads. And we are told that the five heads are fallen. But she's had a relationship with them way back at the first head, which is Egypt. Way back in the time when false religion was really coming to its surface uh, and really being developed. And we're talking about a time period after the flood. I have a little boat here. Um, and really after the Tower of Babel. Um, Babel, we don't have really an idea of a false god. We just find them uh, thinking that they could do this work and build a tower to God. And uh, there's still the, the connection to Noah. Uh, Noah had not been dead very long before the Tower of Babel was built. So he was alive um, in, the, in the just a few years prior to the initiation of the Tower of Babel. And so the reminder that there is one God and that he has destroyed the earth by a mighty flood was is not ancient memory. Um, yes, it had been a while, but remember the people were living a while. And so um, the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Noah that would have had his influence in their life were around. Um, and, of course, one particular one was there on the planet still, we know, and uh, that was Shem. And Shem is going to become an important character historically um, around this time period of the events around the Tower of Babel and the development of this great mystery. And so, the initiation of false religion, that is... Now, remember, before the Flood, we don't really have a description of false religion, um, we really find uh, uh, men doing whatever was right in their own eyes, right? It was a sin issue and not necessarily a false religion issue um, so much. Uh, but now we're going to have something very unique with the development of nations. And of course, the development of nations comes about as a result of the Tower of Babel. Division of the people. And uh, one name in the Bible comes forward as a mighty individual not within the field of those who, who uh, followed after God. And his name is Nimrod. And you go to Genesis, it talks about Nimrod, the mighty hunter. 
And uh, in fact, and we have coinage that goes way back. In fact, if you if you're familiar with Roman and Greek gods, uh, you're probably familiar with what a minotaur is. What is a minotaur? Yeah, so you have these images that are half human and half beast. Um, and so the minotaur was a bull's head on a human body. Um, and then the, um, oh, what's the ones that are huh? Centaurs. There's minotaurs and centaurs. These, these mixtures of human creatures with, with, uh, with um, of humans with creatures. There we go. And so these images you're going to find um, way back. They didn't, the Romans and Greeks didn't introduce those. They are some, some of the most ancient coins that we have. We have pictures of centaurs. And uh, in fact, uh, when the Spaniards came in to the um, region of South America and, re- and were being exposed to, I don't remember if the Inca or the Aztecas that they have contacted first, um, they were horrified at these new creatures they'd never seen that looked like humans on the top and a beast on the bottom. They were horrified. They thought that was a single creature. Um, and it wasn't for some time before they actually saw a human dismount from a horse. Before they realized this isn't one creature, these are two creatures. Well, the first one that we have record of that used in, that tamed and rode horses was Nimrod. And he used it for hunting. And it wasn't the only animal he tamed. He also was known to, get this, to raise and tame and train uh, big cats and use them uh, to hunt with. Uh, cheetahs, leopards, things like that. And so that's, we, we see that in imagery uh, that's out there that we have seen in stone as well as others. But uh, along the line there, Nimrod uh, headed, you know that he founded Nineveh, right? You're familiar with that? And that region... History tells us that he went down into Egypt. And in Egypt, he encountered somebody that gave him opposition. And that was Shem, the son of Noah. And the tradition has that Shem, and by the way, this tradition is not from the Bible, but from the Egyptian version of things. And Shem, the godly man, was the protagonist. He was the bad guy. So in Egyptian uh, religious lore, Shem was the bad man. Nimrod was the hero. And so uh, Shem was trying to stop Nimrod. Um, He had set himself up as a god to be worshipped. His wife, Semiramis, as a goddess to be worshipped. And Shem countered that and countered it pretty violently. Uh, ended up killing Nimrod, cutting his body into pieces and sending it throughout the region, saying this is not a god. And uh, seeking to counter this introduction of false religion, where we have the introduction of this uh, mystery, this uh, uh, birth of introducing false gods. And Shem becomes the uh, hero to us. He would have been the the enemy to the uh, early ones. Well, so Semiramis was left. And Semiramis was known for an incredible amount of sexual deviation and, uh, 
and we have just an explosion of immorality. But somehow, in the in the Egyptian <laughs> lore of their faith, uh, she became a virgin and gave birth to her own husband. And so that her child Horus was the spirit child of Nimrod, and she became this weird kind of virgin. And we have this introduction, even with all the <laughs> debauchery that was around her, um, this is how they spiritually viewed her. And we have the introduction of this individual, and this is her image um, from some of the uh, ancient stonework that we have uncovered. Um, the connection to Egypt, which we're going to get to, is very plain. It's, the names hardly even changed. Um, from Semiramis to Isis, and Horus was a direct o- overlap, and Osiris um, was from Nimrod. So Nimrod renamed Osiris, and we're going to see this right down the road, that we have simply taken the same three main characters changed their names, and uh, followed after that religion. And so this is the introduction of it, and Semiramis is portrayed here, holding her son, who is supposed to be the reincarnation of Nimrod in her son Horus, and who becomes the god of the underworld. And, or I'm sorry, Nimrod became the god of the underworld like Osiris. And so we have the introduction of false religion, um, our, we don't have a lot of things from this period, but it is very clear in the Egyptian lore of their religion, religious foundation. And remember, this would be above the gods Ra and some of the other gods you think of. Uh, the major players, the earliest players, we should say, of Egyptian religion was Osiris, Isis, and Horus. And that is God of the underworld who was dead killed and sent there. His wife, Isis, who was a strange kind of immoral virgin. And uh, this child born who um, was a reincarnation, if you will, of the father. And you have this father-mother-son that so strongly carry forward from this point on in religion after religion in the Middle East and the regions beyond even, as we're going to see, and uh, it, it becomes a theme. Um, and it might bother you a bit. It should bother you a little bit. Um, Satan is the great pretender. And so he has taken the statement made to Eve that uh, it would be the seed of a woman uh, where our salvation would come from. And he has taken that and tried to uh, make it look like he was the originator of that um, and most of our archaeologists and the study students of this see this pattern very clearly. It's pretty obvious in some places. So this is a, um, these are all drawings I've taken off of the actual statues or templates or things that I, in my research, have found. Um, some of those I got to see firsthand in Egypt and in uh, uh, Greece and in Turkey. Uh, and so some of these are directly because and that's part of what I was doing when I was on that in 2001 was seek I wanted to do some of this development myself, and so we find this Queen of Heaven, this title, this Mother of God, this Mother of Abominations, um, starting out with Semiramis, going to Isis, 
Um, and we actually have it portrayed as well in Eastern religion. Um, we have it um, in Hinduism, and uh, it just keeps going. In the, in the Greek realm, in the Roman realm, we have all of these, and whether it's, we always have these virgin mothers that are giving birth to the God child of the God of the underworld. And over and over again, yes, somehow they maintain their virginity. They mean, even though they are involved in incredible um, sexual uh, activity, um, they still somehow stay virgins all the way through. Um, and we find that again, repeat, 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 repeat. And, you, and the image is a woman, a uh, divine woman. Doesn't that look familiar to you? I don't know if you can see it from your seat. You can come look at this. This is not Catholic. This is not even, this is, this is uh, during the Persian period. Um, this is Hindu. Looks just like a Madonna with child. Even with the identification of deity around her. This is, this is very ancient. And so when we come to the Madonna with child in, in this period of time during the church age, we have just taken a theme that has just been carried all the way back to Semiramis. This is Semiramis with Horus on her lap. The virgin mom with son. Because Satan's attempt is to deceive men. The way he does that is by pretending to be what God has promised. That he's the promise and not looking for another. And so um, the Mariology that the Catholic Church um, has, where she is immaculately conceived, where she is... Um, a perpetual virgin, um, that isn't new. It's, it was new to Catholicism at one point. It's ancient. It goes all the way back. That somehow, even in all this, having, with Jesus having siblings, she's still a virgin. Uh, and we, we have to protect that. Um, and this is the falsehood of the harlot. Um, the mystery that is there of these three, the father, mother, son. And uh, that that's this trilogy. And you can find this not just in, in the Middle East, but you will find it in ancient religions of the, of the East. You'll find it in Norse religion. You'll find it in Viking religion, uh, Celtic religion. Uh, you'll find it um, in, the, uh, in the Aztecs uh, before the Spaniards ever arrived. You'll continually keep finding this representation of the earliest forms of their deity as a, a god of the underworld of a virgin wife mother um, who gives birth to a god's son. And this attempt of Satan to undermine the, the true virgin birth of Christ, which doesn't exalt the woman, but rather um, exalts Christ alone. And we... But we find that in Catholicism, um, they fell right into this model of the harlot. And harlotry has characterized all of these uh, virgin, virgin moms somehow, um, even though they're engaged in multiple sexual relationships um, and, and were readily available. So the nations, it says, have committed fornication with her. And the people, the inhabitants of the earth, were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so they followed after her. And so it's, it's no mistake that all the way through here, how did you worship? 
You worship by going to a prostitute. That wasn't something the Romans and, uh, came up with. That goes all the way back here. Where the worship of Semiramis, the worship of Isis was done with prostitutes. That immorality was how you worshipped them. And uh, this is the means of this false religion that has penetrated every society and sociologists and, and have seen this and so they've come to the wrong determinations. Their determination is that Christianity is just another version of it because their version of Christianity is just Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. Um, and so Christianity, and that the, the original God was really a goddess and the original religion was the worship of mother. Because it's so permeated. It's everywhere. Every culture has this in its background. Because this woman has ridden this beast all the way back to its beginning. And of course, we come to Babylon, and we think of Babylon here, um, but we need to think also of Babylon here, of Babel and the introduction of Nimrod uh, and the false religion. Well, there's other descriptions. Let's look at them. It describes her as queen of heaven. It describes her as full of luxury. And uh, that, that purple cloth, um, gold, silver. Uh, and we can look through time and we can see that um, uh, what a contrast between the way the, this false religion worships and the call of God on Israel to worship. What was God's statement to David when David says, I want to build you a temple? And God says, do I need that? Well, earth is my footstool. How can you build a house to contain me? Um, what did God require Israel to build in the wilderness? It was a tent, a tabernacle um, that was portable, can pick up and move, and, and it was a kind of glory that made it spectacular, not the construction itself. And, and when I introduced people to how big the temple really was, that the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, um, not counting the courtyards, would fit in half this building. You start, well, that's not a spectacular, huge facility. No, it's not. Now, did Solomon make it very ornate? Yes, he did. But not different dimensions. It's still the same size. And that is relatively small. Compared to, if you visited any of these places, if you visited the, the, uh, the places of worship for Egypt, if you visited places of worship in Greece, um, even in Babylon. Um, and then, of course, we think of, in terms of the Roman Catholicism, this is what everyone picks up on the city of gold, and that is the Vatican. And that was, it was portrayed as, this is going to be the city of gold, this is going to be heaven on earth. This is going to be the New Jerusalem, and we have the Vatican built um, there. And this is, the, this is the way to identify. These people are all about luxury. They're all about raking in the funds. And over and over again throughout God's Word, we are warned about such individuals, that they are not of God, that the gospel is free, that, that the people of God um, don't have their hearts set on things of this earth, for we're looking for a different inheritance. And, uh, and that's why you see a lot of, uh, of those historically, I can't say that true today, uh, historically that the, that the true church has never emphasized huge buildings. They just haven't. 
Um, you go through the New Testament and find out where you're supposed to build a building to have church in. They didn't have any. They met in homes. They congregated in the school of Tyrannus, remember? For three years they met there and t- got taught. Um, no evidence of that. Um, and, uh, and that's why, uh, like in our Baptist traditions, Baptist churches are pretty easily recognized because they're so plain. Did you ever notice that? You can tell different churches from each other, um, it, uh, structurally wise. And we walked into some place, and I didn't have to see the sign. I said, this is a Baptist church. Look at this, the way it was built. They all looked alike in this country for a while there. Um, just like all the Mormon churches now look alike. Um, they're, they're using identical floor plans. Um, you could tell a Presbyterian church generally from that. You could just identify them from their architecture. Um, and it's interesting, the closer and closer you get to Catholicism, the more ornate they become. So luxury is the thing. And, and uh, this immense... Uh, Wealth that she holds and carries and the weight that it gives her in relationship to the nations. And so she is, uh, again, the, all these queens of heaven. And then it says, this is very interesting. I only have junk with the blood of saints up here. But you'll notice here, and this is, I think, real important designation. Verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And what does that immediately tell you? What, what does that... Huh? Go ahead. Okay. But why are there two groups of people? Saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Wida. Yeah. She had been drunk with the blood of the saints. And that is an Old Testament designation. And drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, which is a New Testament designation. That description alone puts her well into this realm way before the church and throughout the entire church age and not just an end times entity, but an entity has been around. Um, she was slaughtering the saints back here and she is slaughtering the, the followers of Jesus Christ over here. She is drunk with their blood. And... Uh, we can, again, you might say, well, I thought the Catholic Church was Christianity. No, they were the harlot, and they did commit all those trespasses against believers. I hear people talk about, uh, when they want to make accusations against Christianity, one of the things they keep saying is, well, Christians are responsible for the Inquisition. And what they have just portrayed, or just demonstrated, is their ignorance of what the Inquisition was about. What was the Inquisition about? It was identifying two different groups of people and murdering them. People who are followers of Jesus Christ and not the Pope and Jews. Let that sink in a little bit. So the Inquisition wasn't Christianity against the world. It was the harlot versus the church the true church, the followers of Jesus Christ. That's who they were trying to find. They called them heretics, but what they were are people that said there's no authority but God, there's no Savior but Jesus Christ, and they stood their ground. And they were declared heretics by Catholicism, and they were 
burned to death. They were tortured. The, the Inquisition was all about going after what the Catholics called heretics, but they weren't heretics. If you listen to their confessions, what they're confessing is, I have no God but Jesus Christ. I trust in no man but, but my Savior, and I do not acknowledge the role of the Pope as a mediator of my salvation or of grace. I, and they are denying all those things, and that's what brought them into the place of a heretic. They also believed in the Bible, that you should have the Bible ready and available to everybody. So when someone says the Inquisition is proof that the church is bad, um, I would challenge them all over the place and say, really? Who was the Inquisition perpetrated against? Because it wasn't unbelievers. It wasn't against atheists. It wasn't against Muslims. It was against Christians followers of the way. And so, yes, even Roman Catholicism, the Roman Church is guilty of being drunk with the blood of the saints. They hunted down Jews. They hunted down um, believers um, who they declared heretics because they believed in the sufficiency of Christ. That they didn't hold to the need for the sacraments. They didn't hold to the papal authority. And that was too dangerous to let happen. And during the Dark Ages of the Inquisition, they were slaughtering Christians. Not other, not atheists. They weren't, they were slaughtering Christians. So we press on. Another description is, and we talked about the fornication um, and the facets of that. But we also have her talk about a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So we have the fornication. We also have the idea that she's the mother of abominations and she has a cup full of abominations. And uh, this is a term that is kind of a broad term of all the grossest sins um, in God's uh, listing uh, of those things that God hates. And that these uh, are admired and uh, uh, are Sanctify. We'll put it like that. They're put in a golden cup. They are presented to the world as things that are okay to be, be involved in. And that included fornication, but a lot of other things as well. We have child sacrifice going all the way back. Um, and the horrors of that. We have, um, in addition to human sacrifice, we have all of the... Um, uh, debauchery that's involved in, in the worship of uh, drinking of blood uh, from animals uh, and that is very common and, and that's why Israel's do not drink the blood the life is in the blood you don't drink the blood um, but that was how all the other religions the Canaanite and those in Egypt were engaged in uh, the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. That we now, um, because we have this unholy trilogy of this uh, God of the underworld, um, this weird virgin harlot who gives the mother of, of the God child, um, we can add other gods. In the, in the cup of abominations, we're going to add this God. You can pray to 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 this God. 
So, is that true in, in Roman Catholicism? Is all that true? Certainly it is. You can pray to the saints, not for them. And, and that's kind of interesting. You can't take a Catholic Bible and you go to the verse that says, pray for the saints. Um, they all change the word for, F-O-R, to the word to, T-O. That doesn't hurt anything, does it? Instead of praying for the saints, you pray to the saints. Well, if you're praying to someone, they are your mediator instead of Jesus Christ. And so when you pray to Mary, when you pray to the saints, you're adding deities. And those are abominations before the Lord. Um, and then the whole realm of child sacrifice, um, we see it. So all the men who want to identify Roman Catholicism as a representation of the harlot, I agree. But not the only representation of the harlot. And not only in one time period, because what we see going on in Romanism goes all the way back to Semiramis. All that action. All of it. Uh, including even the need for um, what's called Vestal Virgins um, and the whole idea of, our, of clergy that are going to, uh, if you believe it, are going to stay celibate. Um, again, are they celibate? I, I suppose some were, but the fact is, is that we've found historical records that just are blatantly that there was enormous problems of immorality within Catholicism among the priesthood and the nuns. Um, and I can recount a lot of those examples for you if you need me to, um, but let's just uh, put it out there. And so one historian said that there are more sons of the popes running around, bastard son of the popes running around Rome than not. That's what it was known for, the city of the sons of popes who were celibate. Um, of them finding uh, tunnels between where the nuns were and the monasteries where they're supposedly both celibate and finding in the middle um, graves of children. That's what was going on. And we know that today, right? We know what happened here in New Mexico, that up there near Jemez Springs, that they had that little place where they sent all of their pedophilic priests to go under, undergo therapy, which included being lent out to all the churches in New Mexico so that they could perpetrate that crime against all the young boys in, our, in the parishes here. And that's why New Mexico was the, was the flint rock for the, all that uh, accusation against the Catholic Church was because this is where they sent them for treatment in this country. So the idea that somehow celibacy... Um, promotes purity. It didn't. It promoted fornication is what it promoted. And so we have all of these. Yes, they are present in Catholicism. And Catholicism is one manifestation of it. But don't get the idea that it's the only one that you should be looking for because this woman's been riding the beast all of the beast's existence. It goes all the way back to Semiramis. And we see it evident in all the nations and we're going to talk next week about the demise of the harlot and the tenuous relationship between these. This is not a friendly relationship. And if you ever want to know the relationship between the church and a nation and how unfriendly it is, the best book to read for one period of time when it was, when it was obvious is The Three Musketeers. 
Okay? Well, you have two different armies in the same country. Right? And you have agents of the king and queen, and you have agents of the bishop, pope, or cardinal, usually. It's saying it's cardinal. And they're killing each other. They're hunting each other. Three musketeers aren't about two different countries. It's about the relationship between the harlot and the beast. It is not a positive one. It is one that is endured, and the beast can't wait to get rid of it. It's been trying, but it's succumbed. It's, it, it, the harlot holds some tempts for it, some temptations that attract it, and now they are in this interwoven bind um, where now they are have their nation wrapped up into this very powerful entity called the harlot who is actually controlling the reins of countries sometimes and uh, we are seeing it being thrown off and some would contend that this has already happened to large extent well I think we are seeing it, the beginnings of it the destruction of the harlot in our day like this decade we are starting to see this animosity towards any religious entity. Well, that certainly affects Christ, true followers of the way. Um, it certainly affects um, those following Judaism, but it also affects Catholicism and affects Islam. It, can, it affects every belief system that's out there. It's really under assault. So we're going to see next week how this is going to play out at the end now that we know who we're dealing with. We're dealing with false religions stretching all the way back to just after the Tower of Babel with, with a guy named Nimrod and his wife Semiramis. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its uh, precision and the information that you give us so that we can be careful. And we know that you do not want us to be part of this harlot, that you've called us to stay separate from her, to not... Um, Involve ourselves in any of her activity, knowing that she is the abomination. She is that which you hate. She is that which you uh, uh, are calling us away from and to be different. And that you want our complete, uh, singular uh, following. And Lord, our prayers, you might give us wisdom to be able to look at religious and belief systems around us and weigh carefully what they call us uh, to and how they would damage our relationship with you. And Lord, we um, pray you might continue to work in our church, that we might um, maintain that distinction to your glory and to your coming. In your name we pray. Amen.